Welcome, friends, to the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we're off, but we're releasing a former Patreon exclusive with Clueless, which was actually an adaptation of Emma. Yeah. I think in the episode I say something about not realizing even as we were watching it what it was supposed to be an adaptation of. <laughs> yeah, you Because it is a, it's kind of a weird one, but for our generation, it was a culturally significant project. And just, I remember a lot of people talking about it and I think it like started trends and ways that people speak, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, very interesting. And I know in this episode, we ended up getting into some like really intense topics. Um, we still have like a lot of fun with it and, and um, it's an interesting tone, but uh, I like this episode and, and hopefully people enjoy it. And we'll be back next week with our final episode on the road. Just ended up having to delay it by a week, but uh, we will be back. And enjoy this previous Patreon exclusive. This week we are talking about Clueless. And funny story, we began watching this and I knew it was based on something we'd covered already, but I forgot what. (laughs) So like partway through this film, I was like really trying to, well, not really, you know, I picked up on it in the first 10 minutes, but (laughs) at first I was like, at first I was like, what the fuck, what did we cover that this (laughs) correlates to? Oh, I love that. Uh, Okay, so focusing on Clueless, uh, I did remember because uh, (laughs) I think I was the one who said, hey, let's do Clueless. So I knew it was because uh, people had told me that it was this Emma adaptation, uh, which is the Jane Austen novel we covered a little while ago. We covered the 2020, I think, or 20, yeah, 2020 film. Uh, Autumn DeWilde, who recently, by the way, I sent you a music video for um, Florence in the Machine. Florence in the Machine, yeah, uh, where uh, it was directed by Autumn DeWilde, has Bill Nye in it, and it's a really cool video uh, supporting Ukraine. Uh, so I was like, oh, I got to send this to James. Um, it's a cool one. Check it out. Yeah, it was really awesome. I'm glad you sent that to me. And she's she's got such this bright palette, and it's it's such a fun sort of kinetic video. Um, and, you know, I was thinking of that movie a lot while watching this movie um, because there is, you know, one of my main takeaways from this, I guess, if we want to just go ahead and get right into it. Yeah. Is I, I saw this movie at least partially when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. Um, I would say I was probably around the same age. Yeah. OK. But later on. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I'm a little older than you. Um and when I saw it, I did not like it at all. I remember that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did like uh, Alicia Silverstone. She was kind of a teenage heartthrob kind of person mm-hmm. at that time. If you were if you were a guy in the mid nineties, you know, she, you knew about Alicia Silverstone. She I was mean, she was in a Batman movie, which was big. Yeah, for me. yeah, absolutely. I loved her in that movie. Um, but she wasn't really like my type, I guess, if I was starting to develop a type at the time. Right. Um, but, you know, obviously I was like, okay, she's attractive. Um, and so I was enough, it was enough to like watch a little bit of the movie, but I remember being like, this movie is not for me. And I yeah. just checked out. Um, and and that's kind of my takeaway. One of my main takeaways is it's, it's interesting because I saw somewhere that like this movie was a critical darling when it came out. And I was like, really? And I think it's because if you know it's an Emma adaptation and you're familiar with Jane Austen, it works on this like really clever level of almost satire. Like it's having a lot of fun. It's like we're gonna insert these '90s, um, this '90s jargon and and society '90s society of like Valley Girl kind of culture, and we're gonna insert that into a Jane Austen story. And like that's fun, and I can see why critics would like that. But if you're like me and you don't know that at all. 
it's a completely different movie because I didn't appreciate it that on that level at all. I didn't know that. Right. I don't I wouldn't say that this was a critical darling necessarily. I think it I, would... I saw that somewhere. I don't know. I don't know if that's official. I just saw something about critical darling clueless for the mid 90s. I was like, really? I, again, unsubstantiated. But <laughs> It's attained like cult like status at this point. But I mean, I, I wanted to talk about this in the framework of certain types of movies. I think every generation has this type of movie. There was Breakfast Club before this. There was Clueless. And then there was Mean Girls after this. And then there's, you know, it continues on this sort of like. Yeah, but those aren't adaptations. Right, right, right. But I guess my point is they are movies that sort of they grab on and start to create a culture. Like They're kind it, of coming of age comedy. Yeah. I think they inform the next generation like that. Like, like so my generation was watching this movie and seeing a lot of this stuff and thinking it was cool. Now, I want to talk about the ways this movie very quickly soured for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> the 90s thing is like, I'm fine if you wanted it to be sort of like a snapshot of the time and really like go into the 90s. And I think that that's what people love it for. They love that it is like some of these things became popular, like as if and some of those things were yeah. probably popular somewhat, but then really became they popular. were starting to be and then they they hit the mainstream because of this movie. I remember that happening. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of stuff like that. And I think Mean Girls has that. Breakfast Club has that. There's always there's there's these ones that certain generations latch onto. This one is at such an interesting time. We, we, th- we hit this period where you could sort of just be awful. And it was like you could just outwardly be awful. And it was like culturally OK. And um, I this this movie, like in putting it in the framework of Emma, of course, you have this like really rich out of touch person and they don't really they kind of make you want that like this movie like that's that's sort of right. where it's part of the me. appeal of a Jane Austen novel too, though, as we talked about. Right. Right. But we're seeing it in the modern age. Yes. We're seeing yep. we're seeing it when like this is what's happening to kids being bullied in school. There was a blissful ignorance, especially in white culture, I think, in the mid 90s. It was just like everything's great, you know, like. It, it was it was pre nine eleven basically like uh, American culture was very blissfully ignorant of a lot of things. It was fine to just not care about the rest of the world. Like it was funny, right? We laugh that she doesn't well, care, and and that's the main thing is so everything's played for laughs, yep. and it's and it's in and I know what they were trying to do, but it's in bad taste because like oh yeah, if we look oh. at it now, it's all like. You have to be popular. Fuck the fuck the weird people. If yep. you're like the, all the status, body shaming, homophobia, yep, uh, which are things from yep. the, like like those those early things that I was talking about. The statusy things were in Emma. Yep. But like when you see it in the real world and you see it like this, uh, like and it's such a contemporary time, it feels a lot different. And it, sexual uh, violence played for laughs. You exactly. Know, yeah, all, all kinds, kinds of stuff, of stuff like that. Yep. The whole movie's played for laughs and. It, these really serious things like a sexual assault specifically. It was one, one. Oh yeah. She's shoving people off of her constantly and stuff. And it's just like normalizing this, like God, boys will be boys. Kind of oh, thing. Yeah. Like that's like, so to see that so blatant was, you know, it's kind of rough, but I do think that nearing the end of this film, I started to come around on it because at least it was being self-aware enough to say like, this isn't what's important in life. But I worry that so many people watch this movie and didn't take that message sure. away from it. It, so, like I said, like I continued to see it through both lenses. I saw it as the teenager Luke watching it. I guess I saw it also as like uh, um, if I divorce it from the adaptation side of it and just watch it as a movie now, I don't think it aged well at all, like we were, we were talking about. And then I also see the clever ways in which they're using Emma's story to craft this seemingly shallow thing out of, and it's actually really clever. Right. And it's so more clever I, than a movie like this typically is. 
Agreed. Yeah, I agree with that. Something that I don't that I think we have to address too, though, is that this movie currently still has like a massive like if you ask a lot of people our age and and below, there's most people are going to tell you that they love the movie. Yeah, that, that is great. And I think that that has to do with a little bit of rose tinted glasses. Sure. Looking back and the nostalgia, nostalgia of it and mm-hmm. seeing everything, but also. It, like I said, it is. It's like one of those like quintessential high school movies at this point, mm-hmm. and it's it's really weird to think of it like that because I was expecting to go in and be like reevaluated and be like, oh my god, it is this great thing. And part of me feels like that, and part of me is like, oh, we we should not be glorifying this movie for, for any longer than it already has been. It, it's it, you have to like in so much art, right? Like you, especially like when you saw it, what sorts of topics matter to you at a core level versus at a more rational like sort of conceptual level so like depending very much on who you are will affect how much you can overlook like certain flaws in this kind of movie um and it's hard to like it's always hard as like someone who is a quote unquote reviewer which i guess is what we're doing here right to talk about it as if we are some sort of authority like Obviously, we're not women. So, you know, women are going to have a very different memory of this movie. People who grew up as teenage girls at the same time that this movie came out, it means something completely different to them than it means to us. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, and in so many ways, it's going to mean different things to different people. Um, If you are uh, one of the marginalized people being laughed at in this movie, though, you know, you could see this as... um, a, a horrific, like awful movie that you got bullied over and like perpetuated stereotypes. There's so many stereotypes in this movie, right? They really lean into that. So I don't know. It's, it's they, I have this, I have this thought all the time about art and how art criticism, which we kind of do is difficult in that way, especially as someone who's trying to create it myself. Like I'm fully, I think like we both try and own the fact that we have unique perspectives that are um, core to who we are and that is not going to be shared by everyone in the audience yet if you're going to be a reviewer you kind of have to act like you are a tastemaker whose opinion should matter to everybody in an audience yeah yeah so i have a comparison to make that uh was something that has just been in my mind recently um my girlfriend caitlin last night showed me uh the trailer for a documentary that oh just i know came caitlin out. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah have you heard <laughs> She's great. So <laughs> the trailer for this documentary and it's about Abercrombie and Finch. Oh, yeah. I've heard about this. I don't know a ton. I just saw the trailer and she was telling me that like apparently like managers of the stores and stuff were telling a lot of their employees and stuff to expect like people quitting and it's going to be this huge scandal. Um, so all I know is that they were specific and very like intentional and in being like we are hiring only attractive people. Right. And then those people also when they work here have to wear our clothes. So they have to spend the money they earn in the store to buy the clothes in the store. And like so it's this whole like popular kids creating the image, everything. Yep. And then I read in the research for this just a little bit that uh, 20th Century Fox said they wanted a show about teenagers, but not the nerds. They wanted it to be about the cool kids. Um, and so I was just like that to me is just yeah. like, man, like <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like it's just like this weird time where everyone was glorifying like being this. And again, it still happens. Obviously, there's there's definitely like favoritism that happens towards people who are more attractive or seen as more attractive Always. or this or yeah. that. Conventionally attractive. It's yeah. just crazy to me that that like at this time, 
you could they were as bold as they were about just being like fuck it yeah like uh, you know like fuck everybody else because of the way that you were born and the way that you know what i mean the way that you look the way that they you lampshade it a little bit like i was noticing and, and, and like i don't know if this movie deserves this sort of uh uh, benefit of the doubt that I'm giving it, but I was noticing. So, like the character who is the slacker, um, what is his what is the character's name? Travis, Travis. Yeah, which is played by Brecken Meyer. Which I don't know why that guy is so familiar, but You've I've seen him. I've seen, seen his him face in a lot of yeah. other stuff. I think he's a voice actor as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he is this like skater boy who was the one that I felt like I identified with the most, right? Because I'm not I'm not one of these other kids, right? Yeah. Um, but he is so stereotypical in many ways. He he's like. A pot, you know, he's super into pot. He's drinks, super slacker. Like he's that to the T, right? He gives this speech at one point about being tardy, and during the tardiness speech, he mentions how, like the you know the bus was late. How like he doesn't basically like he doesn't have a consistent way to get to school. He has to eat McDonald's every day, and I think it's like underlying like class issues of this guy has to deal with, and that's why he's not making it to class in time. But it's all said as a joke. It's all said as a joke, but it is there. So it's interesting, right? Like that, I, I felt like every now and then they do something like that. I don't know if that saves anything, but um, it's interesting that at times it's there. I understand why, like, like, and that makes sense to me. Obviously, like they were trying to make a super, super broad, like comedy that wasn't going to be super serious about social commentary or anything, but they're basing it off of a Jane Austen novel. So all of that, like brings in some sort of, th- you have to be talking about, about, you know, uh, class and and society but i do want to mention like now i feel like there was there was a period of time after this kind of movie came out and maybe a little after where the movie that comes out that's like this template now is the nerds getting one over on the jocks and then that story being told in, in like an inverse. But that happened in the 80s too though there were some of those kind of movies yeah for sure and i think breakfast club is always a push and pull between those two I haven't seen Breakfast Club in a long time, but I think it was pretty good at representing like each faction of yeah. people within a high school. Yeah. Um, whereas this is obviously more about the Emma type character, super wealthy, like out of touch a little bit with with how normal people are living their lives. So I get that they had to go there. You are you are of, laughing at her though, like she is kind some, of the butt of a lot of jokes, which also rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Like I, I don't yeah. know, like like they have this super super ditzy like uh, character and. Yeah. I was reading some of the behind the scenes stuff where they were saying like Alicia Silverstone really didn't know how to say Haitian. So she said whatever uh, Hadian, the Hadians or whatever. And like, I'm like, that sucks, man. Like, what the fuck? So, I oh, mean, so many. So, yeah, I, I, I felt like compared to Emma, the movie, right, that we watched and also just Emma, the book, like it was more like critical of her and her status. Like, I, I felt like we were supposed to view her as way over the top, ditzy, sort of like entitled, rich, out of touch, all of these things. We're As the audience, you're looking at her and going like, oh, it must be nice. It must be nice to be able to live like that, but it's clearly so out of touch, you can kind of laugh at her. Whereas I felt yeah. like the other Emma adaptation and also the book, it's like you're supposed to really identify with her and, and um, get caught up in sort of this weird class that she happens to live in. At least that was my interpretation of it. Whereas this felt more honest about the fact that like this is someone who's really out of touch and we it's kind of comical. Now, I've leveled like a lot of criticism. So I'll start giving things that I liked. Um, I think it was extremely well casted. Some the standout to me is the costuming is just like, oh, like, yeah. especially what she's wearing is like iconic. And I'm sure that people have continued to model their looks after her for long, long after this. And yeah, I think that's amazing to think about in terms of a production of a film. 
to like make that stamp on on the zeitgeist like that. It is interesting that that yellow seemed to be like a defining color for her in this movie, and it is also in Emma. Right. The, uh, Autumn DeWild. And I wonder if there was any sort of influence there because this came out obviously a lot before. I feel like Autumn DeWild's definitely seen Clueless yeah. and was very aware of it when she was making uh, Emma. Yeah. I mean, she's wearing like incredibly short skirts a lot and definitely trying to be like they were really leaning into Alicia Silverstone as like a sexual icon. Which, again, I, I, I hate it being high school just as a like a fully grown adult at this point and seeing these movies about high school and it's super sexualized and i know that it's like naive to think of high school as not being sexual because of course a lot of people are thinking about that kind of stuff oh yeah and we have there's always going to be movies about dating sex and stuff like that in high school now this movie came out in 95 it's probably filmed 94 or so silverstone was born in 17 76 it said she was 17 at the time 17 of okay so it's a little squeaky but i actually looked into her uh, career a little bit and it's it's i really would love to hear how she feels about this because she came to prominence in a movie called the crush and it featured um uh the guy from princess bride Carrie Elwes. Okay, so Carrie Elwes. Um, so he's in this movie, and just like I read the <laughs> plot description of it, I think I saw part of this movie, or at least I knew about it. She was 15 at the time of filming. She's playing a 14-year-old girl who is attracted to Car- uh, Carrie in the movie, tries to come on to him. He rebuffs her, and then she like starts you know, tearing his life apart. Um, in sort of retribution for being sexually rebuffed by an older man. That's the premise of this movie. She was 15 when she was cast in it. She became legally emancipated from her parents just so that she would be able to shoot the movie because of certain laws, I think, around shooting as a minor. After yeah. she starred in the movie, Aerosmith brings her in to be in their in some of their music videos. They had like a few music videos, like Crazy and a few others that were really big at the time. They liked her in this movie, so they brought her in to be this like underage... Yeah, Heart crying throb. was the one that I saw that she was like yeah really crying big. and then she became she was voted like most desirable woman in like 95 or something on like MTV MTV music awards and all this stuff so she becomes this huge like sexual icon at a very young age um, you know a large portion of it she is underage um, and that is something that I feel like I know it does continue to go on but uh it just reading about it made me uncomfortable. It was like, ooh, I, this is a really tough thing to put on a person of that age. I think a lot of I, I know that it still goes on. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think now audiences are like in a super gross way still. But they're they're at least like waiting till this person's 18 to start like really sexualizing them. At least it feels that way to me because this is like a really weird area. Yeah. Like it was fine to do this. I felt like at the time. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't fine to everybody, but like general society was okay with this in a way that yeah i hope we're not as much anymore so i read that her parents had to be on set in in, in a lot of situations in this movie so okay you know yeah i don't know i don't know what the legal dynamics of that was it was just something i looked at of that, that movie the crush which the premise of that movie i was like holy shit i can't believe that's this was a movie that was made apparently also just a random aside about that movie the director based it on his real life used the actual name of the girl and she ended up having to sue him for libel because she said that it was a lie and he like made this movie all about this. So yeah. Weird. Bizarre. Uh, <laughs> that was a movie gross. that came out in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the director, Amy Heckerling, by the way, of, um, Clueless. of this film of Clueless also directed fast times at Ridgemont high. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that, was, but I've heard you know, of it. Pretty massive uh, for its time as well, like in the eighties and then uh, went on to 
to do a couple of other um, films. Like she did European Vacation and then Look Who's Talking. I think she did all three of those with. I, I used. To, with, I did see Look Who's Talking with John Travolta yeah. and Bruce Willis as the baby. Yeah, that was a movie I liked as a kid. Yeah. And then honestly, now I've seen her do a lot of uh, TV, tons and tons of TV, okay. still working today. Wow. Um, just this movie's really interesting. Like, you know, Brittany Murphy, of course, has, has passed on now. And like, so it's really interesting to see her. And, you know, she was a great actor. Yeah, she had quite a career. Yeah. She was like, I mean, her and Paul Rudd probably ended up being the longest lasting stars. Um, I, I think Donald Faison, who plays the, this Murray character, I mean, he went on to become Turk in Scrubs. So, like, he's had a good, like, TV career, but, like, um, Alicia Silverstone, it was interesting because she she was so big for this little period and then faded. And I don't know if that was by, like, I don't know if she chose that or if that just happened when she, like, aged out of this teen heartthrob that she was so famous for, which is, like, you know, kind of shitty, but. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it, it brings to mind... Um... Reese Witherspoon for me because like I feel like she really blew up with Legally, Legally Blonde and then went on to like but she's had this resurgence that's what I was gonna yeah. say she's, she kind of went on to like evolve her career and um I wonder if yeah I wonder if Alicia Silverstone was kind of like jaded on the whole yeah on the whole industry and was just like, I want out. It might've been by choice. She might've been like, I, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sure she made plenty of money and, and you know, is, is comfortable. So, uh, so one th- other thing that I, I, I feel like, I, I don't know if this is going to be the read other people have on this, but, to me, this movie felt like the screenwriters and maybe the director were sort of looking at kids today and making fun. Like, I felt it, it, it reminds me of the kind of stuff I see about people say about Gen Z right now. Like, when you're making fun of a generation, you're making fun of the way they talk. This felt like someone who is not in the generation looking at the generation at the time, which was basically millennials. Um, and a little bit of Gen X and like making fun of them and making fun of the way, look at the way they talk, look at the way they dress. It's so ridiculous. Um, And maybe that's not completely fair because I know that a lot of people like this movie for the way it captures this, but it felt to me like everything was turned up to 11 in a way that was supposed to like, I think the adults who saw this movie loved to laugh at the ridiculousness of kids today. Um, and that make, always makes me uncomfortable. Like, I hate that sort of ge- intergenerational, you know, poking that happens and, and, and commentary. As soon as you, your generation, you know, removed from some, some somebody, you're going to look at them and make fun of them. And, right. you know, I just and you don't know, it's like funny, that. like, I think it's and I feel the same way. And I think it's because we were a generation that was heavily talked about in, in this way. Like, for whatever reason, it was just something that everyone latched onto and really wanted to talk about. And it is, there are trends through the generations. There's no question about that. But like, yeah, the painting with a broad brush is pretty annoying. I think this was mostly, I mean, in terms of like the ages of the actors and things like that, that would have been Gen X. Yeah, I guess. I, I think it, so, mm, no, so, so I think millennial is supposed to begin in the 80s. Like if you were born in the 80s, you're a millennial. Right. So, but these people were born in the 70s then if they're like 18 and 95. Yeah, that's, I guess that's true. But regardless, at, partly that's also that all the actors are a little older than who they're supposed to be portraying, right? Like, she's supposed to be, like, 16 in the movie, even though she's actually 17. And, and, like, a lot of the characters, I'm sure that was true for them. Paul Rudd, I don't know how old he was supposed to be, but I looked it up, and he's, like, seven or eight years older than Alicia Silverstone, 
which makes a lot of these scenes also very weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was trying to say too. Is like like the just the the, the context of the story is is a little weird, like in terms of the way the sexualization. But he's twenty five, like or twenty four in like real life, and you know what I mean. He's supposed to be this romantic partner for Alicia Silverstone, who's seventeen at the time of filming. I don't know. I mean, like, are we getting too in the weeds with this? Like, is it it's all fictional and like don't worry about the ages so much? I guess. I don't know. It's just it's just weird when you actually like think about it and look into it. You're like, ooh. Um, I guess he was Mr. Knightley, by the way. He's the Mr. Knightley stand-in. I I was shocked at first. I was like, first off, I thought he was an actual brother, and then I found out later that he wasn't the actual brother. He was, I guess, worked with her dad or something. I was unclear of their actual relationship. Ex stepbrother. Ex stepbrother. Okay, that's definitely weird too. I don't know, but okay. Um, it was 95, dude. It yeah. was the fucking Wild West, apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I know that's kind of like, you know, that's Emma, right? That's the idea yeah. of Mr. Knightley in general. Uh, Paul Rudd is an interesting guy to be this heartthrob. I know a lot of people like him, and I and like I like him, too, but I, I, the idea of him being this romantic heartthrob at the time seems strange to me, but okay. I like it. I, I'm cool with it. I think, I mean, obviously the age He's thing likeable. is weird, but... He always plays a likable dude. He's likable here for the most part. He's reading Nietzsche by the bit by the poolside. Got to give him you know, props for that. And it may, the, again, filmmakers are making decisions to have characters make fun of him repeatedly for being like pursuing education in college and all these yeah, other things. Talking like, to adults and caring about conservation things. efforts are fucking lame. Apparently, yeah. as far you know, I mean, I like, come on, guys. But anyway, different world. We I wanted to talk because you talked about Gen Z a little bit. And like, I think the people who love this movie outside of the generation that watched it originally, it's Gen Z loves this kind of stuff. Friends is massively popular from the 90s. This is massively popular. That's so funny. I can barely watch Friends now because I, <laughs> I feel like a lot of that comedy has not aged well either. Right. But it's it's isn't that so interesting to think about? And even The Office, like The Office is clearly a 2000s comedy. Like it's it's I mean, I love and, the and like I still so. love The Office. Yeah. I still love The Office, but but like those things being on streaming platforms and being available to, to different generations like this is currently informing, I think, how some Gen Z is dressing and stuff. So like like I oh, said, maybe yeah. that lasting impact of like 90s culture, like in a, in a like well, a that's very because fashion is particularly known cyclical. for being cyclical. So, right. I, you know, a lot of times it's like there's like and this is true in a lot of things being in fashion, not just what we wear. But like how there's a cooling off period and then an oversaturation period and then a, a desire to be different. And it tends to like cycle back and like all of a sudden that thing that was super lame comes back around and all of a sudden no one's wearing it. So if I start wearing it again, I'm different. And now all of a sudden it's cool again. We see it in trends of books and movies and music. And like you think of like the, the period where every single movie was this dark, super grounded like thing. And then I think we've kind of teetered into like now things are very genuine and pure and like people want you know what i mean it's very interesting to yeah, see there's a bit of both but yeah there's, there's of course both but yeah. you, you know what i mean like in terms of like every movie coming out there was a big put there was a big push for it in like the early 2000s and then that there's definitely a swing back swing away from it totally agree with that i i we can't go over all the like things that re really haven't aged well but there is a lot of them um was that the mighty mighty Bostones? Playing at I, that fucking I, party? I was either that or like it was like real big fish or something like that. Like I, I was cherry like, popping daddies, somebody like <laughs> yeah, that. Ska, some ska. Yeah, if you don't know, there was a weird period in the '90s and early 2000s where ska, like this, like it's like kind of punk, kind of kind of ska, and I think it's not even like a it's like a bastardization of what ska originally was, and it was a weird thing. I think that was the mighty mighty Boss Tones because I think they were famous for having a guy in the band who just danced. 
and I saw a guy on the on the stage who was just like fucking dancing around. And I was Dude, like, Such I honestly like band. the nostalgia for me of like hearing a trombone yeah. and my like punk pop kind of music. Like I I like it. The way they were all trying to dance to it is pretty fun. I love it, man. I'm I'm for it. I, I'm for ska. So if ska wants to make a comeback, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll support it. I'll be there. Oh man. Uh yeah. And then like uh she gets held up at gunpoint, and <laughs> it's played for this like really I don't know. The whole movie is so tongue in cheek. It's hard to take anything seriously. I guess. And I guess that's the idea behind it, but that's such a serious thing to have happen. I don't know. I agree. I, I mean, it, sometimes it, I just don't know how to feel about this movie. Uh, what about uh, Justin Walker, who was um, Christian, sorry, who was um, the character who ended up being revealed as gay? And that was why, you know, she she threw herself at him. He rebuffed her. I, I thought that it was handled OK, actually, other than some homophobic stuff that that was said about him. Um, I did think that was actually handled pretty well. I, I was surprised in a movie that doesn't have a lot of tact in other areas handled that pretty well. Yeah. I think that the portrayal is really good. I think that everybody making fun of him is not, not good. Obviously there's yeah. a lot of I mean, like, maybe accurate. Oh yeah. I mean, time. that's, that's for sure. But like, it's not, I, I feel weird being like, there was a good bit of representation. Yeah. Well, he didn't, what I, I liked that once it was re- revealed that he was homosexual, he didn't like change the way he was behaving, which right. I kind of thought might happen. He didn't all of a sudden like become a super stereotype, uh, you know what I mean? Um, he also had a heroic moment where he saved Brittany Murphy's character, you know, say yep. quote unquote saved. But like he was someone we liked, and I think yes. you continue to like him throughout the rest of the movie, um, which is cool because he could have easily turned into more of a punching bag, more of a mm-hmm. you know how, you know so ridiculous. So just a few more rapid fire things before we finish up here. Um, Elton, the character um, who I think is named the same thing in Emma, right? Like Mr. Elton or something. Yes. Um, yep. I felt like this actor looks a lot like the actor from the 2020 version of the film. And I had to like look him up and see if they were related. They're not. But yeah. And, and like the guy as an adult does not look at like he did when he was a teen. So I was like, oh, it's just weird. Like that they both had this like angular face and looked kind of similar. Um, I wonder if that went to the casting at all. Again, if you know, if Adam DeWilde had seen this movie. <laughs> Um, I, I, I did think Murray, the character played by Donald Faison, uh, was a very cringy stereotype. Um, and in fact, in general, I felt like the, you know, characters of color were not (laughs) handled particularly well. Um, I mean, I give him props for including those characters. Sure. Um, which I guess was a step in the nineties, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Some of the characterizations of it. But then, like, you know, they lampshaded a little bit with, like, at one point, he's like, oh, you know, the way I talk has become more accepted these days. And when they occasionally drop this, like, uh, kind of elevated dialogue, it always feels like they're they're referencing Austin without maybe using exact lines. But they're talking in sort of an elevated way that you would expect to get in an Austin novel. So that was kind of a cool little reference to that kind of language. Well, and again, I think it, it comes back to what we were saying about the gay character, like this sort of having stereotypes across the board for your characters can be problematic when you start to have characters that are like marginalized. And yeah, stuff. I mentioned that, like, at first the movie soured on me and then I sort of came around on it. So right. I want to talk about why I came around on it. And it was mostly because in the same way that Emma does, I felt like the arc of Emma was effective. And I think that we saw a character learn to have more humanity and learn how to understand the like there's the moment when she's really low and um Brittany Murphy's character Ty is like the most popular girl in school now and and everybody's listening to what she's saying and and 
Cher goes home and she's left to like deal with it and like start to overcome and start to realize the people that she's interested in. Not to mention that Ty, in the same way that Emma has Harriet in, in the Jane Austen novel and says like, you know, I have feelings for, in this case, Josh and that like that's her lowest point and then she she starts to reevaluate what is important and you know donate her clothes and do things for for other people and and then by the end she she comes back around and she's probably going to go back to a status quo sort of situation once she's dating josh in in a way but i felt like the arc was there and i think a lesson was learned and hopefully audiences walk away taking that as the lesson from the movie and not try to be rich and snobby and like walk around saying stuff about other people. There is still a very fatherly dynamic set up between uh, between uh, Cher in this movie, which I totally forgot the character's name was Cher. They say it a few times in the movie, but it never really stuck for me. Um, right. I always just kind of thought of her as an Emma. Um, but our, her and Josh, uh, I think their dynamic is still very like father-daughter, which is weird um, because he's so like... He's like taking care of her. She's treating him much like how she treats her own father. Like she's like, oh, I got to take care of him in like a very, you know, traditional way. Um, that was a lot of this movie was very like traditional, normative yeah, for the very time. Normative, and, and yeah. Like, yeah, like propping that kind of stuff up. So uh, it is an interesting look at the 90s. It's a period piece. Um, I think it will continue to be that even as it ages, because it will be very locked into this per- very particular set of t- like time period. One weird moment I have uh, had in watching the movie was when this Travis character says, I didn't the get nine the inch exact nails line, thing. the nine inch nails thing. Yes. Yeah. He's like, it freaked I me should- out too. I, did, I got my brother on the phone and I was like, let me tell you this line that i just heard because it made me feel like i was ancient did you write it down yeah oh i I remember the line it was basically like the rolling stones is for my mom as nine inch nails is for me and so i should probably stop antagonizing her because one day kids younger than me will see nine inch nails like i see rolling Stones. yeah exactly and i was like i was like we're there that is now like a hundred percent like that, that, I agree. That moment was was pretty like astounding. I was you like, know the Jesus. the gif of like Matt Damon in in uh, Saving Private Ryan where he like goes from like young <laughs> to old. That's there. exactly <laughs> what was happening to me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, totally agree. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this movie was actually more fun than I thought it was going to be. I had I had more fun watching it than I thought I was going to. I like it better in some ways because I know it's an adaptation. I was able to appreciate it on that level. I do think it's a cool idea to, and I, and I know it's been done in other places and we, and there's a few that we might cover in the future but like to take a movie uh and base it off of some classic piece of literature but completely change it to where if you don't know that classic piece of literature you can't even recognize it but if you do know it's like a cool layer right yeah she's the man is one with taming of the shrew yeah and uh what 10 things i hate about you is supposed to be one or something like there's a few of these out there that have been done uh lion king for like hamlet there's like a few of these that that uh, you know if you know the source material really well, you can see all the connection pieces. But if you don't, it, it you're just like, oh, this is a cool movie. So it's a clever thing to do. I appreciate it for that reason. And I remember thinking, like, if you're going to make a movie like this, it's very, like, broad and stereotypical. It is cool, at least, to have it seated in a story that is known as, like, legendary. You yeah. Know, like, a, like a literary story like this that'll stand the test of time. Because you're basically standing on the shoulders of giants and being like, all right, well, this story works. Let me let me put a new framework around it and put a new spin on it. And I, and I guess this all comes back to like, I wasn't really sure how I was supposed to feel about the movie and the characters that I'm watching. Am I supposed to identify with them? Am I supposed to laugh at them? Am I supposed to pity them? Am I supposed to like feel like they're wrong? Am I supposed to envy them? 
it's probably a mix of a lot of different things, but like, I guess I was, because of, uh, I was so unclear with like how I was supposed to feel about the movie. It did leave me a little adrift to where at the end I was like, that was an interesting watch, but it's not something that I'm going to come back to or recommend to people. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I had a few laughs. I had a few gasps because it was very dated yeah. and I, and I understand I don't hold it against people if they do like this movie, sure. but for me and my modern sensibilities as a guy too, like it just, it, it just like did it hit me really, it gave me like the old one too. And I was like, <laughs> Oh shit, I wasn't ready for some of these things that, that popped up. Like, yeah, it, it just, I don't know. I'm not going to recommend it to be anybody either, but I, I laughed a few times. I had a good time. It was a fun little time capsule. Cool. All right. That's going to be it. Uh, let us know if there's any other movies that are like this that were maybe like roughly based off of some other adaptations we've covered. Um, we could definitely consider consider doing those in the future or any other ideas you might have for bonus content because we're, we're open to, you know, trying different things over on Patreon. That's part of the fun of this uh, of this format. But yeah, until next time, keep adapting.